word of God to where we were this morning, to Second Timothy uh, chapter 3. Second Timothy chapter 3, and I'm going to be reading from verse 1. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. Uh, This morning we uh, began this message and we couldn't complete it. And uh, really the title of it is, Are We in the Last Days? And if we are in the last days, uh, then surely there will be indications, signs that will tell us that. And the Apostle Paul here in the verses that we just read uh, gives us 18 or 19 telltale signs to look out for that will surely tell us that we're in the last days. Now, of course, there's other than that. I mean, Jesus spoke about... Uh, all kinds of things in Matthew 24 and Luke 17. Uh, But we're focusing uh, today on these uh, statements of the Apostle Paul. So this morning we looked at selfishness, greed, boasting, pride, blasphemy, disobedient to parents, being unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, and slandering. And of course, uh, we unpacked all of that this morning We're not going to go into any of that tonight uh, for the sake of time. If you want to know what that was about, I would encourage you perhaps to pick up the CD of that. And so tonight we want to continue a little bit further. And as I said this morning, uh, because each of these by nature is negative, uh, I want to end up positive. And so at the end of this then, you'll see that we'll change tack a little bit uh, because the Apostle Paul is not telling us this for us to be anxious and be afraid and to cave in and to give up and say it's not worthwhile and, and feel that we're constantly under the cosh that much that we just want to just say nothing or do nothing for the kingdom. Not at all. But he is warning us and he's telling us to look out for these signs and to know that because we're in the last days and we believe that we are, uh, then how do we live? How do we handle that in the, in, in the midst of all of this stuff that's going on? So let's continue then. Uh, just for a little bit tonight. And so as well as unloving, unforgiving, and slanders and all the rest, then in verse 3 he says, without self-control. And specifically, he's talking about lack of self-control regarding bodily lusts. Now, in the long history of mankind, we have never had such availability and accessibility to pornography. It is endemic within society. Now here's a scary thought. Every child, every young person that's got a smartphone, that's got through that mobile phone 
an internet connection has got access to pornography. Fact. And don't think for one moment that they will not be tempted to view it. You're kidding yourself if you do. Because of peer pressure and because of natural curiosity. And unless, unless it's well filtered, and as a parent, make sure that your child's phone, or they have a smartphone or a laptop, make sure it is well filtered. And even having done all of that, it still can be got accidentally. Sometimes just putting a certain word into a search engine, an innocent word, be amazed sometimes what that can throw up because pornographers, because it's a massive industry. It's a billion dollar, billion pound industry around the world. Billions, in fact. And because of that, they use innocent words so that when you tap in sometimes an innocent word, it will get you through to some pornography. And it's a shame because it's not only widely available and accessible, but it's so destructive. It's so denigrating. It's awful. And it's damaging. It's damaging minds. It's damaging hearts. It's damaging souls. And it's not just young people. And it's not just kids. It's not even just young adults. The biggest selling book in Great Britain today is a book on pornography. Well, it's not called that, but it is. That's just porn. It's written porn, written by a housewife, by a woman. And women especially are buying it. It's making her a multi-millionaire in Great Britain alone. So it's not just the kids. It's not just young people. It's endemic within all society. Without self-control. And there's a sign of the age that we live in that's of the last days. Now, the apostle Paul was writing. Remember the context he's writing this, and he's writing this in the Roman Greco context. That was a society he lived in and moved in. And I mean, they were very permissive, extremely permissive. And yet he's gone beyond that to the last days. I mean, if he was living today, he would not believe what it could be like on such a large scale. So one of the signs is a society that has lost self-control. We're living in that today. And then in verse 3 again, another sign is brutal. Brutal. Fierce, uncivilized, that means. Now, having just recently returned from Auschwitz, Birkenau, death camps in Poland, I can assure you that the brutality, the barbarity of the Nazi regime is unbelievable. When you walk around that place and you see it and you're told the stories, and you go into the rooms, you can scarcely take it in. The depth of barbarity that they went to, not just to kill somebody, 
but to shame them, embarrass them, to hurt them, to demean them, to make them almost inhuman. You wouldn't treat dogs the way they treated people. But what if today is society in general not becoming more brutal? Are movies, TV programs, computer games, are they not becoming much more brutal? Are we not becoming desensitized to it? I mean, what shocked five years ago no longer shocks. Why? Because we're not sensitive to it anymore. We've been bombarded with it so much. It doesn't mean much anymore. Makers of movies and TV programs and computer games, they say, well, we're just reflecting society. And so we bear no responsibility. We shoulder no blame. But is that actually true? Have we not a generation grown up with this stuff that now it's copying it? It's actually entering into that false world that they see. Why, just a few days ago in Aurora, California, worldwide news, wasn't it? The premiere of the Batman movie at midnight. And that town in Colorado, the theater was full, and a young man, James Holmes, straight-A student, was doing a PhD course and just dropped out of it. Burst into that theater and threw a canister of gas and murdered in cold blood 12 men, women, and children. By the way, there's another one that's died since that. It's 13 now, so I can't. And doesn't seem to show any remorse whatsoever. Call himself the Joker, the arch villain of the Batman movies. Brutal, wicked, fierce. And just a week later, in Los Angeles, California, a stand up comedian was making jokes about it distasteful, sick jokes. People hadn't even been buried. And you'd think that the audience would walk out. Do you know what they did? They clapped and they cheered. So when Paul says in the last days, they will be brutal, who would doubt it? And even already a Facebook page has been posted in honor of the killer. How sick as this society become? Do you know that in the USA, since 2005, there has been 431 shootings, multiple shootings, more than one person shot dead. That's on average five, five, sorry, on average that's a shooting, multiple shooting every five days all over the United States. You say, well, that's terrible, but that couldn't happen here. You know the only thing that's preventing that happening here are gun laws. It's the only thing. Because they're much stricter. And if they weren't as strict here, believe me, we would see much of this. Karen Stapleton from Manchester, Boxing Day, just passed. 
walked up to a young Indian student in Salford, Manchester. I looked right into his eyes and took out a gun and shot him in the head, dead. And then stood over his body and laughed. For no apparent reason, for no reason whatsoever other than to get himself a name, to get noticed. He then signed himself into a hotel across the street, phoned up his mates to come and watch the police deal with the body out the window, and laugh at it. He's just been sentenced to 30 years without parole. He got a teardrop tattooed underneath his eye. Not because he was sorry, because he wasn't and wasn't. Not because of the sorrow that the victim's families feel today because he could care less. But so that when he's in prison, it shows everybody, hey, I'm a killer. Look at me. I killed somebody. How brutal is that? South Africa last week, just last week, Three men burst into the home of a former employer. They beat the husband up with a golf club and a machete. Then they shot him dead. They waited till his wife and son come home. Then they brutally raped her and shot her dead. The 12 year old son was standing crying, seeing this. You know what they did? They tied him up hand and feet and they drowned him in a bath of scalding water because they knew he could finger them. Whenever they were at court, they stood and they smirked and they laughed because it meant nothing to them. No remorse. No feeling of humanity, nothing. That's just a sampling, just a small sampling of just this past few days that's happening. That's happening every week if you watch the news and read the papers. So when Paul says in the last days, society in general will become brutal. I think we can agree with that. And then he says, despisers of those that are good. Don't we see that? Don't you see it especially if somebody stands up for a good cause, a righteous cause, something that's wholesome and right? How that generally in society they're laughed at, they're put down, they're shut down. I don't know why I watch it because it makes me angry and Sally goes into another room and goes to bed because I, I watch those uh, current affairs panel programs. You know, with David Dimbleton and all these guys and they have their panel mostly made up of left-wing anti-establishment people for the most part. And then to bait them, they usually put in someone like Peter Hitchens, who's a, a writer for the Sunday Mail. Peter Hitchens' brother, Christopher, who just died there recently, lived in America for years, was a, an ardent atheist to his last breath. And, and all of his life he baited Christians and debated with them and 
put them down and try to make fills of them. His brother, brother Peter is the total opposite. Uh, a good man. And whenever he's on, you can be sure he, he'll stand up for that which is right and that which is godly and good and biblical standards. But do you know what? They laugh at him. They've even booed him. <laughs> That's the depth of our society has gone to. No wonder Isaiah 5 and 20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. And we're living in the day when that is happening. When anything that's good and wholesome and right is laughed at and scorned. For the most part. So Paul was right. Then he talked about traitors. Verse 4. Those who are treacherous towards their fellow man. Betrayers. Luke uses this word in describing Judas's dealings with Christ. Of course, that was the greatest, ultimate act of betrayal, wasn't it? Traitors. Those who would sell their friends and their friendships for whatever bigger offer comes along. And it seems today that there's more and more people are prepared to do that. Where friendships and relationships take second place to careers or business or money or whatever. Where people will sell each other out for a mess of pottage. Headstrong, he says. That means hasty, reckless, rash. Everything today has to be done at 100 miles an hour, hasn't it? It's instant results we want, instant gratification. Right here, right now is the mantra. And because of that, there's no time to wait, no time for wisdom, no time for common sense for the best part. It's got to be done now. And it's got to be done my way. And our society is rife with that. Haughty. Haughty means the authorized version, high-minded. means conceited, arrogant, puffed up. I'll say again that I said this morning, you see this whole banking scandal and the Levison Inquiry where, huh, well, they had to come before that committee and explain themselves. And rather than come in with some kind of humility, they're coming in with that arrogance and that haughtiness and conceit. And their whole, their whole tenor is, even though they have lost billions for their bank and billions for the taxpayer, that's our money that's keeping them afloat. And in spite of that, they award themselves massive bonuses worth millions and they come in and they sit in that chair, proud and arrogant, conceited. And their whole tenor is, well, I deserved it. I earned it. <laughs> they put their company to the wall and put the country to the wall and they feel that they earned it. That's the haughtiness. Like I said this morning, like that ad, because they feel they're worth it. 
And so we see this all throughout society, in the business world and politics and all over. We see this conceit and arrogance. Then he says, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. And I think this especially applies to the Western world, to the most prosperous parts of the the world in general. The only criteria seems to be if it makes me happy. It must at all costs feel happy. It doesn't matter whether it's off limits as far as the Word of God's concerned. It doesn't matter if God says, no, I want to feel happy. I want to feel it. No matter whether it's right or wrong, I want it. And that seems to be the way. We must experience it. We must have it. And so the entertainment industry has pushed the bounds of decency further and further and further away. And because what satisfied us last year doesn't satisfy us this year. It doesn't make us happy anymore, so we need something else to make us happy. So at all costs, we must be happy. And sadly, even Christians have bought into this. So we allow ourselves to do things, to see things, to go places that our parents never would have dreamt of as Christians. Never would have dreamt of it. But you see, we're not like them because we're free, don't you know? And we're liberated and we're not legalistic. And we can do whatever we like because it feels good. So the criteria is not, is this right? The criteria is, this makes me feel good. Therefore, it must be right. And sadly, that has crept into the church. Lots of Christians do things today, and they could care less whether it's right or wrong. The only criteria is, I want to do it. I like doing it. It makes me feel good. And there's a tragedy. See, that goes right back to the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? Where Eve saw the fruit. It looked good. It smelt good. tasted good. must be good. God says, no, don't touch it. No, it must be good. I, I, I can see it. I can smell it. I can touch it. I can taste it. And it's wonderful. It's good. But it isn't. It brought death to them. It brought death to the human race. And we're still doing it to this day. We pick the apple and it looks good, so it must be good. It doesn't matter if God says, no, you can't have that. You can have everything else, but don't touch that. No, no, I want this because this will make me feel good. And then he says, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. So this is a religion of the head, but not of the heart. It's got outward ritual, but it's got no inward reality. It's got a creed, but no cross. And it makes people feel comfortable, unchallenged. The Daily Telegraph reported, published a report. They polled 2,000 of the 10,000 clergy of the Church of England. 
And here's what they found. That one-third of them discounted, sorry, one-third of them doubted or disbelieved in the physical resurrection of Jesus. This is the ministers. And only half were convinced of the truth of the virgin birth. And only half believed that Jesus is the only way to heaven. <laughs> That's the preachers. What chance has those in the, pulp, in, the, in the seats got if the man in the pulpit doesn't even believe? And in the liberal wing of the church, it's even worse. The liberal wing of the church, two-thirds doubted the resurrection and only three-quarters, uh, sorry, and three-quarters doubted the virgin birth. Only one-quarter of them believed in the virgin birth. And only one-third of them believed in the resurrection. Paul said in the last days there'd be a form of godliness. There'd be an outward appearance of it. But it would be without power. Because they don't believe in the power of God to save a soul, to change a life. And that's a tragedy, isn't it? You know, the ironic thing about, particularly the Church of England, because it's in Great Britain especially, the ironic thing about it is the more liberal it becomes, the more it loses its congregation. And they say the more liberal we become, the more relevant we'll be and we'll not say anything, we'll upset anybody, we'll not challenge anybody and we'll accept everything and everybody and we do that, more people will come. The opposite's happening. They're leaving in droves. Why? Because they're no different in the world. Why would anybody want to come out of this world and go into a church that's no different? And they don't get it. And they don't want to get it because it suits them. And Paul says, from such, turn away. Head in the other direction. Because that's going to hell. That's the direction it's going in. And so, what are we to do? As I said earlier, I don't think Apostle Paul gave us this to frighten us, to cause us to car down, to make us to lose our voice, to give up on the church and say that it's, it's going to be, light's going to be put out. It's not going to make it. The world's too strong. Look at the laws the government's making. But here's another irony with the church. The tougher the tougher it becomes for the church, the more it's persecuted, the stronger it becomes, and the more it grows. China's a classic example. China and North Korea, where they tried to completely stamp out Christianity. China especially. Christianity is growing. <laughs> it's exploding with growth. And the more they persecute them, the more they grow. I'll tell you more about that in a moment. Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 1 and 7 said that God has not given us a spirit of fear, of timidity, but of power and love and a sound 
mind. A mind that is saved, protected, sound. A mind that can think, that's not befuddled, that's not confused. And in these last days, we need minds that can think, that's not confused and muddled and fuddled. We need to be able to think straight. We need to be able to think about the Word of God. We need to be able to see the world around us and understand what's going on in the last days. The Apostle Paul says that's the kind of mind that God has given us as believers. So that in these times we live in, which will become increasingly more that we talked about today, increasingly more, more stark than that, we need to have those minds that's clear, that's strong, that can think God's thoughts, that can think God's way, that's got a worldview that God sees in his book here. That's what we need. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, 1 Thessalonians, Paul here is writing to believers. He's talking about the second coming of Christ and they're asking him, well, what about those who have died in Christ? What's going to happen to them? Verse 13, he says, of 1 Thessalonians 4, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep or have died in Christ. That means, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Christ or in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall ever be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Paul's talking about the coming of the Lord. And he says, for the believer, there's comfort in that. Not fear, but comfort. Then he goes on to say, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, for you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. Hey, we've got a sound mind. You are all sons of light and the sons of the day. We're not of the night or of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. For those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet of the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we sleep or wake, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you are doing. So I'm not telling you this today to put the frighteners on you, to get you that you can't sleep at night, or you're dreading the days that lie ahead. Listen, 
This is the generation that God caused us to be born in. This is the generation that God caused us to be born again in. This is our generation. We're the only ones that can make the difference in our generation. Generations past, generations maybe in the future, but this is our time. This is our generation. So God is causing us to stand up for us to be raised up, not to be frightened, not to back off, but to proclaim the word of God and to stand for Christ in these days. And Paul says he's given us a sound mind to do it. So he says, edify, build up one another, comfort one another with these words. The kingdom of God, in spite of all that's happening today, the kingdom of God is advancing at an incredible rate. Tremendous. Not that you would know that by looking at Great Britain, but in other countries of the world, other nations. Let me tell you a little bit about Brazil. Marcia will love to hear this because she's Brazilian. Just last week, more than one million evangelical, that's born again Christians, more than one million evangelical Christians participated in the annual March for Jesus. <laughs> one million. <laughs> Can you imagine that? All marching for Jesus. It says Brazil's evangelical population is exploding, jumping from 6.6 to 22.2% of the overall Brazilian population, according to the 2010 census. This means that evangelical Christianity is the fastest growing religious segment in Brazil. And by the way, the fastest growing segment within evangelicalism is Pentecostalism. That's a fact. The, the census results from the Brazilian Institute of Geography and Statistics published in June 29 just passed there, shows that the evangelical population of Brazil increased by 16 million people over the 10-year period from 2000 to 2010 to 42.3 million. <laughs> Isn't that fantastic? And so in spite of all of this that's going on all over the world, the church of Jesus Christ is healthy. There's more people being born again today ever in the history of the church today than the history of the church. It's incredible what is happening. Let me read you this. Again, just, just last week, just this week past, the Korean World Mission Conference was held in Wheaton College in Chicago. There's over 5,000 participants, including 2,500 Korean missionaries from 169 different nations. And it says here that the largest gathering of Korean missionaries worldwide in the Chicago area met this week to celebrate a critical milestone, the world's fastest growing missionary movement. The number of Korean missionaries in 169 countries has exceeded 20,000, more than doubling in 10 years. At this rate of growth, Korea is expected to surpass the United States as the top missionary-sending country in the world by the year 2020. The Korean missionary movement 
traces back to late 70s, but it, but it began its rapid growth in 1990 when 1,000 Korean missionaries were dispatched overseas. Today, there are approximately 25,000 Korean missionaries around the world, indicating a 2,500% increase in Korean missionaries in the past 20 years. <laughs> and that's only two countries. And so in spite of all this stuff that we read today that's happening and will increase, the church of Jesus Christ is advancing. The kingdom of God is going forth as never before. And so we have much to rejoice about tonight. We have much to be glad for. Would to God that it was happening in that scale in Great Britain. It's a long time since we had revival in this country. 1859 was the last big revival. That's a long time ago, isn't it? Even I wasn't born then. <laughs> Sometimes I feel it was, but even not. Do you know that in 1859, 10% of the population of Northern Ireland got saved in one year? 10%. That's a lot, isn't it? Imagine if 10% of Moira got saved in one year. Boy, we'd be rejoicing, wouldn't we? But 10% of the whole country. And things were bad then. I mean, the churches were dead, twice dead, plucked up dead. But four young men got together and prayed for God to send revival. And God did. He answered their prayers. And it swept through this nation like a whirlwind. Sweeping 10% of the population into the kingdom. That's why you drive through towns here and you'll see First Presbyterian, Second Presbyterian, First Methodist, Second Methodist, all the rest of it. Because of that revival, there's so many. The churches couldn't be filled. And so I want you to be encouraged tonight. Yes, I want you to be informed and understand the times we're living in, see the stuff that's going on, know what's going on, know who's behind it, but also to rejoice in the fact that in spite of it, God has raised the church up. And he's raised us up to be part of it, hasn't he? Amen? Let's pray. Stand with us, please. Lord, we thank you tonight that indeed we are part of your great church. We thank you that you have given us that wonderful born-again experience we are born from above by the Spirit of God. And Lord, that was nothing of ourselves. That was a work only of your grace. We did not deserve it, but you loved us and you gave us life. So we thank you for that, Lord, tonight. Thank you for making us part of your great church around the world. And Lord, we're encouraged tonight to know that it's growing and it's going Lord, help us to play our part. To reach out with the love of God and the mercy of God to a lost and a dying world. And even though, Lord, it seems to be in this part of our country that many does not want to hear and will reject, but, Lord, our job is to deliver it, is to speak it and share it and testify of it. So we thank you for the opportunities. Lord, as we go out into this week now, we just pray that we will have other opportunities that we'll find seeking and searching souls 
men and women or boys and girls that are looking for the Savior. For Lord, these truly are the last.